everyone, and welcome to COVID Around the World, the podcast dedicated to connecting with Fairfield University's international partners during COVID-19. My name is Laura Seeger, and I'm a rising junior from Fairfield University. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the amazing country of Ecuador. Joining me today are three guests from the Starfish Foundation to talk a little bit about how education in Ecuador has been affected by the presence of COVID. To start, I'll have our guests introduce themselves and explain their connection to Ecuador. Okay, so I'm Jen. I'm uh, connected to Ecuador because after I graduated from Fairfield University in 2010, I did a year of volunteer work in Ecuador and then co-founded a foundation down there in Ecuador. So that's sort of how I'm connected. And how about you, Stephanie? Can you tell us a little bit about your connection to Ecuador? Sure. My name is Stephanie Allen. I um, came to Ecuador the first time in 2013, after I had graduated from college, I also participated in a year-long volunteer program. So I was living and volunteering in Guayaquil and uh, eventually returned to the States and then found my way back to Guayaquil. And I've been living in Ecuador for the past about two and a half years. And you, Fred? Yes. Hi, I'm Fred Schick. Uh, so I am the, the education manager uh, with uh, the Starfish Foundation. I have uh, lived in Guayaquil or in Guayaquil for about two years, but in Ecuador about uh, ten years. Uh, I first arrived as a Peace Corps volunteer in 2008, and have been going back and forth between uh, the United States and other countries like Colombia. But over yeah, ten years in uh, different parts of Ecuador. That's awesome. So I wanted to start with talking to Jen a little bit because she is the co-founder of the Starfish Foundation. So Jen, can you tell me a little bit about what um, the Starfish Foundation does and how it's impacting the Guayaquil community? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, I have a co-founder of the Starfish Foundation whose name is Beth. And so after our volunteer year, we felt really inspired to continue our work in Ecuador based on the need that we had seen from the people that we had come to know and love as friends and family during that year. And there was a, a really inspiring partner um, during our volunteer year that I always um, need to mention when talking about how we got involved in Ecuador and, and how that sort of impacts the community. And she reminded us of one of her first moments, realizing that, you know, where we have skills and passions to meet needs of other communities, we really have a responsibility to act. And so we felt that responsibility and um, went back to Ecuador. And that's where I lived for about eight years with the Starfish Foundation. And we saw that our passions and our skill sets really met a need for education in the lower income communities in Guayaquil and on the outskirts of Guayaquil. So we started a program that does scholarships, tutoring, and leadership development to support students' academic progress and really sort of fill in some of the gaps left by public education and help the students develop leadership skills and academic skills as well that will really get them ready for life after high school, hopefully some sort of post-secondary education, and really breaking the cycle of poverty into which they were born. And so in terms of how it's impacting the Guayaquil community, specifically in Florida Bastion and where we work, I think we see some of our greatest successes and hear our greatest successes from students and families when they talk about our tutoring program and the really individual support that they get from our educators and our staff. And over the years, the tutoring program has really grown and adapted to the needs of the community. And so I think that's something that we're always very in tune with is trying to, to listen to the community and hear what they need and how we can best provide those services to make sure that we can continue to help students really achieve more, graduate high school, and get into college. Awesome. So can you just tell me a little bit about who is doing the tutoring for the students? 
Absolutely. Um, so we have on this call with us Stephanie, who is our program manager, and Fred, who is our education manager, and they oversee the rest of our staff of um, administrators and educators. So the people on the rest of our staff team are all local Ecuadorians. A good number of them actually come from Florida de Bastion, the, the community that we're working in, and others come from other parts of Guayaquil. Um, and they're working with our students one-on-one in small groups and giving larger group lessons too as well. And um, that's something that's been really important for our students to see these role models who are, are Ecuadorian, they're Guayaquil, uh, like Guayaquileño, and they're also, you know, really from their neighborhoods and seeing them succeed and being good role models for them. Yeah, so um, I found out about the Starfish Foundation through Fairfield. I was looking for somebody to partner with for this podcast, and um, one of the ladies who works there suggested I reach out to Jen because she's a Fairfield alum and had started this really awesome organization. Um, and I got the opportunity to visit Ecuador uh, maybe two summers ago, and it's just an amazing country. Um, I loved everything about it. So I was really excited to be able to do this and kind of learn more about education in Ecuador. But because of current events, obviously, things have changed a little bit. So Stephanie and Fred are currently in Ecuador. They're in Guayaquil, living, working. Um, So either Fred or Stephanie, whoever wants to go first, can you tell us a little bit about what Ecuador has been like since the start of the pandemic? Sure. Thanks, Laura. Um, So the pandemic kind of came on, I think, like in many places, kind of suddenly. Uh, The first cases were reported um, here in Guayaquil, I think it was like late February. Um, at that point, you know, things were still operating pretty normally. Um, but by mid-March, uh, that's kind of when things got a little more serious and the government actually shut down basically the entire country. Um, so things that weren't, you know, grocery stores, hospitals, pharmacies, like were closed. Um, and we are still living in kind of a version, a modified version of that still um, here at the end of July that we're recording this. So you know, I think um, something that the government took pretty seriously was really kind of implementing that lockdown, um, really trying to restrict how many people were out and about. There was limits on what days cars could circulate, um, all in an effort really to reduce any sort of, you know, mass conglomeration of people in a certain space, you know, whether that be supermarkets or whatever. Um, and so that's kind of been the the reality, if you will, Clearly, um, you know, in every part of the of the country and different parts of the city, you know, are all ex- all experience this in a, in unique ways. Um, but Guayaquil was actually the epicenter of the COVID outbreak in Ecuador um, back in in March. So uh, it definitely kind of had like the strongest impact at the beginning. Um, now that we're in July, there's definitely been more of a um, kind of outbreak, and, and they're seeing waves of it um, in other parts of the country, like Quito, the capital. Um, so here in Guayaquil, things maybe have calmed a little bit, but, um, you know, we're still pretty much in a lockdown, a little bit less restricted, but there's still a lot of things that aren't open like schools, for example. And Fred, from a, um, from a health system structure, like perspective, how do you think that the health system in Ecuador attributed to the number of cases or maybe even the death rates of, um, COVID-19 in Ecuador? Um, well, when it first started, I think, the it revealed how little prepared the health system was, uh, just like in most countries, I think, um, especially here in Guayaquil, uh, the health system quickly was overwhelmed. News stories uh, started to pour out and uh, made international headlines about, you know, uh, families 
who did not know have people take the bodies of their loved ones, you know, to the cemetery. Uh, the morgues were overflown, uh, and uh, the mayor had to put containers uh, outside of the major hospitals um, to complement the morgues that were already saturated. So it was really, really uh, dire at uh, the first months. Um, and it revealed, you know, the, how the, the lack of equipment, lack of preparation for this type of crisis, um, and also the, the bad use of funds. Um, I think past administrations have uh, invested more in, in the health uh, health system of the country. Um, however, some uh, have been misused or, or misallocated. Uh, I think it revealed a lot of corruption uh, that we knew were, was happening, but it, it really uh, brought a lot of light to that situation. And yes, it, it really took a, a, some time before the health system could actually stabilize, thanks to the effort you know, that were taken, uh, locking everything down. So, so yes, I think there's still lots of improvement to do uh, in the health system, and um, I hope they, you know, this this tragedy will allow you know the country to be, be better prepared in the, for the future. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of experience of just not having enough um, enough supplies and beds and everything for um, for all the people that were sick that was consistent with every country throughout the world. Just nobody was ready for something that was going to hit this hard and make so many people sick. So um, it's definitely definitely the story in many 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 countries throughout the world. Stephanie, I have a question for you again. Do you think that? Um, the people who are living in the mountains have really struggled with the COVID pandemic since they might be more spread out, there less congestion. How do you think that their experience has differed from people in cities like maybe Guayaquil or Quito or uh, Cuenca? Yeah, I would say that definitely, obviously, the cities, like the same as, you know, you see in the States and in other parts of the world, cities are most more drastically affected, right? Because there are just a lot of people in the confined space and um, that just is going to lead something like this virus to propagate. Um, I would say, you know, in the mountain region, so I mean, Quito and Cuenca actually fall in the Sierra, the mountain region of Ecuador. And so they are still experiencing um, kind of the effects of, of COVID and it's worsening in those areas. Whereas when it started, it was really a coastal thing. A lot of that was contributed to, um, the airport in Guayaquil. So a lot of, you know, obviously those first contagions came through through air travel and, and that's kind of how it spread throughout the, the country. Um, travel between provinces was actually restricted for a long time. So that I think probably was helpful for those rural areas as well, right? Um, you know, if, if you were in a rural area, you're staying in a rural area and you weren't coming into the city to, um, you know, theoretically can contract the virus and bring it back to those small neighborhoods. So I would say probably, um, you know, in those more rural areas, I think you see a lot less incidents, right. Than obviously you would in, in, um, the bigger cities and it's easier to isolate. And I think that's a thing that's really important to know is that, um, you know, in, in a lot of parts of Guayaquil, and I can reference the neighborhood that we work in, um, you know, people are living kind of like one on top of the other, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, you have your house and you have your yard and like the next house is is spread apart, you know, you have houses lined up one right next to the other. And so 
and a lot of, you know, the climate in Guayaquil is hot. Um, a lot of folks in neighborhoods like the one we work are very, very low income and they don't have, you know, air conditioners or things like that. And so imagine being in this small space, like confined and asking you to stay in your homes. I mean, it's just not reasonable. People are still going to be sitting outside or walking down the street or talking to their neighbors. And like that opportunity to isolate is really challenging. Um, and so that's what makes it so much worse in um, cities because there's just not kind of really where to isolate. And and if you do have a home to isolate in, you're probably not necessarily um, like in a super comfortable situation, which at one point, you know, is going to be hard to maintain. And so I think, you know, in the rural communities, you definitely see a lower incidence because of that, because you're not having as much regular contact with folks, whereas in the city, you definitely are in a lot of the neighborhoods. Um, just aren't set up in a way that's going to be conducive to any sort of isolation. Yeah, and and sort of piggybacking off of everything that Stephanie's been explaining about the reality in Ecuador and specifically in our neighborhoods, I think one thing that has been really eye-opening for me is around the world, really, I think it's become clear that those from low-income and economically disadvantaged backgrounds who are the people that we seek to serve in Ecuador through the Starfish Foundation, they're the people who have been really disproportionately hit with the effects of the pandemic, really highlighting other inequities in society, sort of how, you know, Fred was talking about the healthcare system and and um, we're talking here about differences between rural and city life and things like that. So I think just really highlighting a whole bunch of different inequities that exist around the world, but, you know, specifically for us in Ecuador and seeing the kinds of things that need to be addressed and how really important it is to to be looking at all those aspects. Yeah, it kind of seems as if social distancing is kind of a privilege. There's so much talking about how important social distance, distancing is. But as you guys were talking about, for some families, it just isn't possible. For some people who need to go to work, it's just not possible. So you see the low-income families being affected the most, and no matter what country you're in, because people need to feed their families. People need to have a place to live. And um, it's really interesting just how the word social distance, like make sure you're social distancing, well, like that's not possible for everyone. Um, and I think that really has played a role in just like the different communities being affected in different ways. But I wanted to ask, Jen, since you are living in the U.S. right now, um, do you have any specific ways in which you think that Ecuador and the United States have um, differed in their response to the coronavirus? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. And, and I think that some of the things Stephanie highlighted earlier about the sort of immediate and in some ways drastic responses that Ecuador took in terms of um, implementing curfews and different restrictions on travel between certain areas and even travel at all outside of your home is something that to me was very different. Um, you know, I live in, in Connecticut and, and gratefully we're in a space right now where um, we have been able to implement some systems that are, are helping us reduce the spread of COVID right now. But I know um, one, that isn't the case in all of the country. And two, we certainly never had the sort of drastic measures that were taken in Ecuador. And so I think that really speaks to, you know, the differences in how um, we, the sort of like governing bodies of each country were um, sort of looking at this issue and how seriously we were taking it right away. I definitely felt that in Ecuador. Something that I think of when I, when I think of Ecuador too, or especially in the communities where we work, um, people are face a lot of challenges. And not to say that people don't face challenges in the U.S., 
but a lot of the families that we work with are really used to things having to change all the time and adapting to these sort of obstacles that happen in their lives and really working together as a community to get through things. And I think that's something that I've seen differently in the U.S. where, you know, certainly there are people who, who want to work for the common good and get past this, but I've also heard a lot more here, and Stephanie and Fred can correct me if I'm wrong, if they've also heard this in Ecuador, but I, I hear more in the U.S. and less so in Ecuador of, you know, I don't want to wear a mask or don't restrict me and don't do that. Whereas in, in Ecuador, I felt more a sense of, okay, this is hard, but this is what we have to do right now. And I think that's been the kind of the starkest cr- contrast for me. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting um, thing to ask just because you are maybe you, like, yes, you're living in the United States, but you're working with people who are in Ecuador. So you're really seeing both sides and able to kind of compare and contrast what's going on. Um, I think you're very right that in the United States, there has been a lot of backlash for the um, safety precautions being taken. But I think that as a country, we're trying to move forward, but there's just a lot of like stressful dialogue and frustrations. Um, and I'm sure that's happening all over the world. But I think what you said about Ecuador kind of just like wanting to take the next step, get better, doing whatever it has to take. I think that's something that we should learn from in the States here. And learn that in order to see the progress we want to make, we really have to be willing to do whatever it takes. Um, But now that we've talked a little bit about COVID in general, I wanted to dive more into how COVID has affected education. So Fred, would you mind talking a little bit about how the education system in Ecuador is different than in the United States? Because I know that there's some differences that are really important to the story. Um, So do you mind shedding some light on that? Sure. Um, So in Ecuador, uh, it's a small country, but very diverse. Uh, and there are two uh, separate schedules. Uh, there's the coastal schedule, uh, the, the, which is currently ongoing. Um, and there's the mountain and uh, Amazon region schedule. So when uh, the COVID pandemic uh, hit um, mid-March or earlier March, um, we were on holiday here on the coast. But in Quito and all of the Sierra area and the Amazon, they were in school. And so when uh, the, the, uh, the curfew and the lockdown measures were put in place mid-March, um, the Ministry of Education was very quick in uh, putting together uh, a COVID-19 education plan, um, which was uh, distributed through their website and made accessible to all schools, public and private schools, um, so that they could keep the students active. Um, and so they had a curriculum, a weekly activities for different grades, um, that focused a lot on uh, the, the pandemic and uh, how to stay emotionally and physically healthy uh, in this time and how to make sense of it all, you know, how to adapt to this new reality that's affecting us. Um, so I think this, the, those resources have been widely u- utilized by uh, teachers uh, and students. Um, and, but naturally, the, the, I guess, transition to virtual uh, education uh, has not been um, equal to all, and 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 it revealed the digital divide that, that exists in many countries, but particularly here in Ecuador. Um, in in urban areas, there's a lot of uh, fam- many families, many students who do not have access to computers or um, uh, internet, uh, as well as teachers. But mostly in rural areas, uh, some some students have been completely uh, disconnected, uh, as well as as uh, teachers have been disconnected from their classrooms. Um, so it's been it's been difficult, uh, and the ministry has been, I uh, guess, um, pretty aware of it 
and you was creative. They, they've utilized television channels uh, to uh, broadcast educational material. They've used radio as another uh, channel to uh, guess convey different educational material. Um, but it's been a challenge. When we started uh, classes here on the coast, uh, it was uh, delayed a month. Um, but I, I think the, the, the coastal schools had more time to see it coming and prepare. Um, and, but they, most schools have been utilizing the material that the ministry has been publishing every week. Um, and, and some private schools have their own curriculum and give classes, uh, you know, through Zoom mostly, um, and, and adapted that way. But it's, it's been very difficult for many, uh, students who do not have access uh, uh, to this technology, for sure. To add on to what Fred was saying, uh, you know, when the pandemic really hit uh, here on the coast, we were on school vacation. So we were kind of in this limbo and there was a lot of talk amongst parents and students as to, you know, is school going to start on April 16th, which was the established date um, which ultimately, you know, got pushed back and it was going to be May and then ultimately ended up being June 1st. So, I mean, there were a lot of changes. And and I think, you know, what Fred says is true. I think it, it allowed schools more time to kind of figure out how they were going to approach um, kind of these virtual classes. But it was a time of real uncertainty. And I just remember, you know, hearing from from parents and students just as like really like just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of confusion as to, what is going to happen? What is this going to look like? And then what Fred mentioned, you know, the resources to be able to do this. It's really great to say, okay, we're going to put all of our classes online. But when you are living in a neighborhood where, and you're teaching in a neighborhood where the majority of folks don't have internet, and if they do, they're maybe connecting on one device, like a telephone, um, you know, not a lot of our students have access to computers or internet or things like that. Or if they do, you know, they have maybe one computer or they have one um, phone that they can connect to and they have four school-aged children. Um, so the logistics of it has been really challenging. And despite the fact that there was kind of time, um, you know, from the proposed start date to what ultimately ended up being the start of the school year, um, there was time. There's still a lot of things that I think weren't figured out in the best way. And, and that families, some families are still trying to figure out. And I think, um, you know, I think we're at a point where folks aren't um, with the belief that like, oh, this will blow over soon. I think maybe when it started, people were like, oh, you know, this was just like a short term thing until we can get back to school. I think the reality is kind of setting in a little bit more as to like, this might be a longer term thing. And, and I have a lot of questions about just the um, sustainability of this long-term system when you have students who don't necessarily have the access. Um, and as Fred said, you know, some schools are providing, you know, live instruction, particularly private schools, but a lot of public schools, which, you know, most of our students in the community that we work in are studying at, at public schools, they're not providing live instruction. You know, their kids are getting this packet from the Ministry of Education, which was very well done, um, but it's really autonomous. It's really self-guided like work that they just have to hold on to and keep in this folder that supposedly at some point they're going to present to a teacher and it's going to get graded and that's going to be how they're evaluated for the year. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of issues about um, student achievement and, and what that's going to look like and how this year, especially for example, for students who are about to graduate and things like that, like what this year is going to mean and look like for them in the long term. And I know the first time that we had a conversation, 
um, I was talking to Stephanie and Fred, and we were just talking about how in Ecuador, a lot of parents of these students who are trying to learn by themselves without the guidance of a teacher, a lot of their parents haven't really received um, a high level of education. So they're really almost on their own. Can you speak to that at all? Yes, for sure. It's uh, This is another big challenge that uh, our students have been facing, not to have you know the support from uh, from their parents to, I guess, navigate through the new platforms, you know, the, all this new technology. Um, and naturally, now the parents have become teachers. Um, they have to fill this gap. And uh, some some parents really don't feel uh, competent enough to, to uh, support their, student, their, their, their kids, you know, uh, and to complete all the tasks, all the projects, uh, and even uh, comprehend what they need to do uh, properly. So it's, it's been another challenge. Um, and I think this is where the, the Starfish Foundation uh, plays a big role in, in filling this, this uh, void, you know, uh, and this gap where we uh, keep in touch uh, uh, every day with our students um, and ask them how they're doing and, and uh, organizing, setting up uh, live classes uh, when they need to. Um, we use WhatsApp to communicate with them, but we've also used Zoom uh, for uh, tutorials. Um, and keeping them active and making sure they're uh, they're up to date with all their homeworks and assignments and uh, knowing what's happening. Uh, so I think this is many many other families don't have this this kind of support, and it's been it's been a big struggle for sure. Yeah, when like in the summertime when you're doing work for school, I have either my parents or my siblings there helping me, and I just think for a lot of people who don't have that extra help. Even with when you're in school with teachers, you need that extra help from people around you in your own home. I just can't imagine how difficult that must be for the students. Um, but yeah, I guess um, for a question for Jen, I know Fred touched on this a little bit, but how has um, Starfish and their um, their work kind of changed now that you can't meet face to face? Like, how are you continuing to really help your students um, even though you're not able to meet with them face to face? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think sort of, you know, a lot of the things that, that Fred and Stephanie have said about the education system in general, again, are just really being highlighted throughout all of this and sort of the, the people, the families that we work with. And I think um, it's really highlighting the importance of Starfish because as you just said, Laura, um, you know, students really need that extra help. And especially in this environment, that's it's new to us too. Um, but to really have someone there guiding the students along the way or being able to ask us questions or things like that. I've, I've had the opportunity to speak with a few students about how their online learning is going recently. And one of the questions I asked them is how, um, what's the hardest subject to learn virtually? And across the board so far, I'm getting answers like math and physics because they're not having those in person or even live classes. And they're finding the subjects that might be more challenging anyways, really hard to learn in this virtual environment. And so I think the way that Starfish has really been adapting is to try and find new ways um, to to support the students. So like um, Stephanie and Fred had mentioned, a lot of the communication started off by WhatsApp and um, sending 
help that way through the students. And I know they've been working a lot and I'll, I'll turn it over to one of them to fill in more of these gaps, but um, to connect with students also via Zoom and especially the students who might not have those live classes for school and really keep them motivated too. I think it's it's really hard for everybody being home and especially um, for children who are, you know, need to interact with other people and other kids their age and, and really develop all sorts of skills. And so I think um, Starfish's mission is absolutely still focused on education, but I think um, really making sure that we adapt to the times and also help in any other way um, that we can through both education and partnering with a local food bank to get um, food on families' tables during this really difficult time. So I think either you know Stephanie or Fred can definitely jump into about ways that Starfish has sort of shifted during this time. So yeah, absolutely. Um, what what we have been doing is really um, continuing our our work as as well as we can. Uh, usually, when we're in person, uh, when students come to our uh, uh, to our class uh, classroom, uh, they receive uh, homework help, and we give uh, workshops on specific subjects. Um, so we want to you know uh, continue uh, that that's that line of work. Um, in the virtual uh, and or remote way, um, so we are uh, we have our team that we we have uh, distributed all our students equally uh, or evenly am- amongst uh, each team member, so that we could um, you know provide a more personalized attention to each of them, dividing uh, separating them by grades, and in addition to the homework uh, help uh, that we provide, uh, we uh, prepare weekly workshops on a specific uh, subject. Um, and so for example, this week we're uh, going over Spanish classes um, and we have created activities that they have to complete and uh, we sh- uh, um, vi- video recorded uh, tutorial lessons explaining the theory and correcting some of the activities and helping them uh, complete a second activity. Uh, so we send them all through WhatsApp and then we follow up, follow up with our students and provide extra help if they need it and they need to. Um, our students need to submit one one of those activities um, that we then grade. Um, so it's part of it's it's one way to also keep them active. Some students don't uh, uh, you know don't have as much uh, or at their schools don't aren't very um, I guess uh, engaged by by the the different. Uh, projects that their school gives. So, uh, and they, they are not specifically uh, studying a specific uh, subject. Uh, so that's a way to keep them, uh, I guess, sharp and, and uh, strengthen foundations in, in, in those, those key um, subjects. So that's, that, I think it's been very, I guess, uh, well received from the students and from the parents. Um, but as Jen has mentioned, I think the motivation piece has been a challenge. Uh, some students are very responsive, some a little bit less, and we have to go after them and, and really um, make them, uh, really motivate them and push them so, so that they, they really complete everything and see the, the benefit of, of, of keeping active, uh, of staying active uh, academically during this time. Um, so it, it's, I think we've, we've been doing a, a really good, good job at you know, engaging our students and making sure that they're, uh, you know, continuing to push their, uh, their boundaries and uh, strengthen any gaps in knowledge that they have. 
uh, that will definitely be beneficial, if not right now, uh, when you start actual classes in, in the different subjects, it will definitely be beneficial. Yeah, and I think just to hop in real quick, too, I think something to know about education in Ecuador is an ongoing challenge even prior to the pandemic is that a lot of the public school systems, either for lack of resources, lack of teachers, or for whatever you know reason that might be, a lot of the education isn't really focused around critical thinking and autonomous learning. So to be totally thrown into all of this um, by force, sort of, because, you know, we have to because of the pandemic and students are having to to be more autonomous with their learning. I think that just really highlights um, all the work that the education staff has been doing at Ecuador is, is really necessary um, because even in, in a non-COVID world, these are sort of obstacles that our students face to learning when they're a little bit more used to sort of rote memorization techniques rather than any of the independent thought they have to do. And, and also that goes along with motivation now. You know, I don't have a teacher who I see every day and I have to turn in homework, but it's still really important that I continue to advance in my lessons. I would say, too, going off of the idea of motivation, I think another thing that's really important to um, talk about and to keep in mind when we talk about um, education and, you know, we work with high school, uh, middle school and high school age students. And so I think one thing that I've seen a lot as well is that a lot of our students have had to take on other responsibilities aside from just their own studies. And so earlier we were speaking about how a lot of the parents have had to become, you know, the teachers and they've had to work with their students and they don't always feel capable. And so sometimes what that means is, you know, you have your, you know, 12th grade student who on top of doing their schoolwork has to help their, you know, brother or sister who's in fifth grade or sixth grade or whatever. Um, And so they've also kind of had to take on this other role of not only, you know, being responsible for their studies, but also sometimes for their siblings, um, because the parents either are don't feel like they're capable, but also maybe because they're working. Um, We've also had we have other students um, that also have to work to help their families. And so that's, you know, a really heavy thing to be a 15, 16 year old student and have these responsibilities of, of your schoolwork and, and noting the value of that, right. You know, and wanting to do that well, but then also having this weight of an adult, right. Of having to find ways to help support your family economically or, or whatever the case may be. And so those are other things that I think can really affect, um, the motivation piece and, and, and just studies in general. And so one thing that Jen mentioned that while we are still hundred percent committed to and focused on supporting our students academically, another thing that we have been really lucky to be able to do has been to partner with a local food bank here in Guayaquil. Um, really early on in the pandemic internally as an organization, we had a lot of conversations about, um, you know, how this is going to affect our, the families that we work with and our students, um, much more, you know, aside from education, but how is this going to affect them, you know, on a personal level? And a lot of um, families that we work with, you know, uh, maybe one of the parents was working or both of them were, but one or both of them have been, um, you know, without work because, you know, everything shut down. And so, you know, places were just laying people off left and right. A lot of people lost their source of income. A lot of parents of our students um, don't necessarily work in the formal economy. So they are the folks who are, you know, selling food on the street or, or whatever that may look like. And so when everything gets shut down and you're not allowed to be outside doing that anymore, you no longer have a way to make an in- to earn an income and to support your family and to feed your family, right? And so we recognized a real need to figure out how to help families through this because we knew that this was going to affect them 
um, you know, really economically and, and personally. And so we, um, since last year, have been partnering with a local food bank here in Guayaquil that supported us with our snack program. Um, but when the pandemic hit, they actually um, mobilized to um, help get donations out to organizations like Starfish, um, who are working in these types of um, really low-income communities to help um, uh, distribute food. And so we've been partnering with them since late April to um, get out donations and, um, of food to our families so that we can help in a, at least a small way, um, relieve a little bit of that burden, that economic burden, and making sure that their, you know, their families are fed. And so we feel really, really grateful to partner with them um, and continue to have their partnership you know, these over the course of these few months. Um, and our families have been really grateful for that. So that I think, while it's not necessarily um, obviously connected to education, it's something that's really important as a fundamental, um, you know, right to be able to make sure that your family is fed. And that's also going to help your students learn better, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I think that um, although this pandemic has created an immense, immense amount of problems, it has really kind of just shown um, the humanity of people and really giving people the opportunity to step up and make a difference in other people's lives. Um, and there's organizations all over the world who are um, offering services for free or very cheap just because they want to make sure that people are eating, people are, are getting the things they need. And like you said, if you're trying to do homework when you're hungry and you haven't eaten in a day, your focus isn't going to be at the same level. Um, so I think that like I said, there has been a lot of negatives to this whole situation, but in every negative, there's always a positive to look at. Um, and I'm really glad that you guys have found a positive in that situation. Uh, but I also just wanted to go back a little bit to the whole motivation thing and back to um, the students kind of having to play kind of the role of an adult also. Um, some Sometimes I think school gets a bad rap because you have to go and do homework and spend a lot of time there, but also for a lot of kids, it's kind of an escape from reality. Like they can go and be a kid. They can, for like the youngest kids, they're interacting with other children, learning how to share, learning how to play, learning one, two, three. Um, but for older kids too, like it gives them opportunity to learn. And I think that a lot of the kids in the United States kind of take advantage of that. But for some people, that's, that's everything to them. Being able to go to school is everything and, um, gives them an opportunity to make a living. And, um, I don't know. I just think that without that safe space for children, it's kind of uh, had a lot of like added some difficulties for a lot of people. Where's Ecuador now? Like, how's the country itself? And uh, where's the education system or kids kind of getting ready to go back to school, universities? Like, what does that look like? So whoever wants to jump in, feel free to answer that. Well, I would say that um, right now there are no plans to go back to school in, in person uh, for the time being. In fact, I think their plan is to finish the school year uh, remotely um, in most of the countries. However, they are contemplating uh, reopening some schools uh, starting next month in August um, in rural areas where the, the COVID is less, uh, less of a problem and where the, uh, the digital divide is, is the strongest. So uh, all the kids who have uh, not been able to uh, follow classes or teachers that have been uh, not have been a, a, able to to work. Um, they will reopen those uh, schools that only have one teacher for the, the, all all the different students in the small uh, villages. Um, so they will start this next month, and so it will be by sector. Um, 
However, in big cities like Quito and Guayaquil, it's very unlikely that they uh, reopen schools in person um, before the end of the year. Uh, naturally, we're kind of in a wait and see uh, situation that the Ministry of Education is always, uh, I, I think, coordinating with the ministry, health ministry and, and looking at the data and um, will be assessing. Uh, we are, are naturally looking at the experience throughout the world um, and other countries who have reopened schools. And I think this will give us more information as to what are the right conditions, you know, to to, uh, to reopen uh, schools. But naturally, it's going to be, uh, I think, uh, still a, a long time, uh, long road ahead before we, we go back to normal. As for universities, some of our uh, uh, staff members are uh, current university students. And they have uh, started classes, um, also virtual classes, um, in the evenings, and you know, similar schedule as if they were in person. But they uh, follow class uh, through Zoom in most cases, um, and different uh, educational platforms. So those have been working, but I don't think there are any uh, set dates in terms of going back to normal. Lastly, a question for Jen. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how we can contribute to the work of the Starfish Foundation, how we can maybe help make a difference um, and help you guys continue doing the work that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things about our organization here in the U.S. and I guess worldwide outside of Ecuador is that we are always virtually run 100% of the time. We have a really large virtual volunteer team and board of directors. Um, and so, you know, with people all around the world, too. And so if um, anyone feels sort of inspired to learn more about our mission or help us out in any way, we always have all different kinds of volunteer opportunities. Um, currently, we even have some opportunities that might involve interacting with our students in Ecuador while we're still in this virtual learning space. Um, also, communications and development and all different kinds of ways to really get involved and, and support our virtual operations here in the U.S., where we are a completely volunteer team. Um, we always are conducting different kinds of fundraisers. This year, of course, any events will be virtual, um, but we are always looking for new sources of funding as well as our volunteers. And so um, there's really all different kinds of ways to, to get involved. Um, our website is thestarfishchange.org. And so you could look us up, send us an email, um, get in contact with us and you know, post-pandemic, post-COVID, we also welcome volunteers to come to Ecuador and participate in that way and volunteer in our education programs. And so those are sort of some of the ways to, to get involved. And we're always looking for um, new people to join our team. Awesome. I wanted just to say thank you to all of you for joining. I think that um, we've learned a lot today, learned a lot about Ecuador, learned a lot about the situation going on right now and how um, the Starfish Foundation is playing a role in overcoming the difficulties that have come with COVID. Thank you so much for everyone for listening and tune in for the next episode of COVID Around the World.